Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Look, I've been out of that club life for many, many years. Do I regret living that life in the past? No. I was a kid from a broken home. I lived on the streets. I was sexually abused. I was physically abused. You know, I grew up in a very strong, hard environment of survival. It was comfort within brotherhood. And that was pretty much it. You know, it was a family that you never had.
I think it's fair to say most of us have pretty strong ideas about motorcycle clubs. For one thing, most of us tend to call them bikey gangs. We've heard lots of allegations on Australian true crime about bikey gangs and their involvement in various criminal activities. The Bandidos in particular are considered to be a criminal organisation by the United States Department of Justice, the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada, Europol and the Australian Federal Police. They are literally an outlaw motorcycle club in many parts of the world. But our guest today, Brent Simpson, will dispute a lot of the worst allegations made against them as an organisation. And he would know because he was a high-ranking member for most of his adult life. He'll also make the point that he is no longer a member and hasn't been for many years. It's very difficult for him, though, to extricate himself from his past in the minds of others. I can't stop myself asking him questions about his time in the Bandidos and neither can the New South Wales Police. We'll begin this conversation with Brent explaining to me what his responsibilities were when he was the Sergeant at Arms for the Australian chapter of the Bandidos Motorcycle Club. Well, just basically taking care of things in reference to, you know, keeping things in order in-house, you know, just, I mean, I won't go into the whole nitty-gritties of it all. It's not who I am. I don't sort of, the police and public know enough about that these days without somebody else had to do it. But, um, well, I don't. I really don't. I mean, I, 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 we, my imagination, I mean, part of me wants to make a joke about it, like as in yeah. are you the guy who puts up the sign in the kitchen saying, you know, your mother doesn't work here, do your own dishes. Like, well, more, you, what, you could look at it like that. You're, 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 you know, you're being a naughty boy, you've got to be reprimanded for it and you go sit in the corner. Yeah, I mean, look, it's just plain and simple. Like I said, without going into specific detail, which I won't, um, it's a matter Why of, not? That's what you're here for. It's you're not, not that guy anymore. No. Tell us the guy you were. We need you to tell us no. the guy you were. Because we sit here all the time and we hear from people saying, oh, okay, uh, you know, I've investigated and I'll tell you that bikies run all the meth in the country. Bikies run all the illegal tobacco in the country. Bikies, you know, this is what we hear week in, week out. And now- you're telling us that at one time, uh, how long ago were you sergeant oh, at arms? When I left the club, 2009, 2009, 2010. You know, there's a structure within all that sort of um, club. I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's You've got, you know, your hierarchy and you've got, you know, within the club things that have to be heard by, um, the structure, there's rules and regulations and you know, as the sergeant of arms, you are there to make sure that each of the members accordingly you know, addressed to those and um, obviously, you know, able to sort of look after senior members and issues if there's outside issues that may be untoward that might be coming to the club meetings and so on that you may need to go and intervene and neutralise conflict. You have structure within a club and, you know, we're talking back in 2009, 2010, now how they're structured today and what goes on in clubs, I can't tell you. I don't have anything to do with that life at all. So let's Put that very, very clear. I'm not. Please, let me be clear. I'm not trying to catch you out. That's I all right. Genuinely, don't know. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you the most upfront and direct answer to to the questioning, but it'll be specific. So, therefore, you know, words uh, as as I have found out, and I'm sure you're well aware of, can be uh, twisted and turned to suit, especially in the world we live in today when it comes to law enforcement and so on. So, um, and it is something that's specific. And as I said, it's it's the job within the club is you know maintaining the structure within the club, uh, each of its members doing, you know, when I say behaving, you know, you think people have this illusion that 
it, there's no rules and they just run a mark on that. Well, look, I, like I said, I can't speak today, but what I can assure you is back in the day and, and when I first come into the club scene, if you, if you misbehaved within the club and I, I had misbehaved and I was reprimanded for it, you know, and you don't want to be put in that position because there are some serious consequences for making big mistakes within club life. You know, they there's certain ways that will and won't be accepted. And I know back then it was a lot better structured if I could because of that reason. It's good and bad in anything. I mean, we could sit here and go down a rabbit hole and say, oh, you know, like there's religion, there's pedophiles, you know, politicians, there's pedophiles. And, you know, don't, you know I don't want to get started on the whole fraudulent in the governments and all the bullshit that we go on about because we could sit here all day. You know, there's good and bad in everyone. Like any other structured club or environment, and I suppose there's times where discipline ebbs and flows. Are there? Um, are there times when the discipline wanes, and times where the discipline's really good and really tight? I like I say, I can only speak for you know my life in the club, and, and I, I've got nothing negative to say around it. I mean, the bottom line is, if you're going to disrespect or bring the club into disrepute or embarrass the club or any of your brothers or the you know the colours that you wear, then Obviously, there's a consequence for that. Um, no one likes to be looked like, you know, you, you're a piece of shit by anybody's sort of means and eyes. And this is where, the, the once again, the public need to understand, yes, I get it. Okay, we can get on the rant. Bike your shit, bike you this, bike you that. But don't be fooled to think that because someone doesn't get, you know, brought into the public eye and bring some sort of untoward uh, to the club, that that's not dealt with internally or reprimanded. Because you're really mistaken if you think that there's not other consequences outside of the law itself. Okay, that's interesting. So what can you tell us what a public offence that would earn somebody a reprimand inside the club? Like is public violence, for example, does that bring consequences in the club? No, it never was accepted. Yeah, right. No, it was not something that was ever ever taken lightly and it was never something that was accepted. I mean, you know, if you went out, got drunk, carried on, uh, wearing club colours, you know, and started being abusive, humiliating, aggressive towards women or attacking, you know, people, public people, you, you're not, yeah, not acceptable at all. Obviously, if there was a situation that occurred and, you know, it was it was on the moment and the spot or whatever and it occurred, well, that shit happens. That happens every day. You go play a game of football and it can turn into an all-in brawl. It sounds like a cross between a football club and a workplace. It was because there's, you know, there's good and bad in both. It's your workplace, right? It, is it your job? Like, did you have a job at the same time? Oh, no, no, I, I've always had a job. I've always worked because, yeah, no, you don't get paid for it. <laughs> it's definitely No, but I, I assume that what, what was going on, like the, the activities of the motorcycle club made you money. That was my assumption. So I thought it was your job. No. Nah. Um, and if you were making money, however you make money, that's your choice. That's got nothing to do with the club. Oh, right. No. The oh, club, I've... no, definitely not. And the club's always bigger than the, the member. So, you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, you never, ever think that you can use the club, run off the club's back. And, you know, it, back then, yeah, if you were caught out doing that, you're in trouble. It's as simple as that. You know, it's, it's not, not how club life is. What about the conflict with other clubs? I mean, you know, dating back to the very famous uh, Milpera shootout against the Comancheros. So that was in the 80s. Then we've got conflict with the Rebels in the 90s. We've got conflict with the Gypsy Jokers in the early 2000s. The mythology is that once you're in a motorcycle club, you can't just decide to leave it because that club will say, no, you're still in. And also people, like let's say whichever other club you were in a war with, whatever era you were in the Banditos, that those 
people might still target you, even if you've decided to leave the Banditos. 100%. Look, I've been out of that club life for many, many years. You know, you always got to look and think to yourself that um, who knows, someone might just pop up out of the past and boom, that's your time. It's done. You know, you're, you're, you're done. And that's the life you live because, you know, obviously that's nothing like the life, life I live today and, and, and choose to live. Do I regret living that life in the past? No. If I was a kid from a broken home and lived on the streets, I was sexually abused, I was physically abused. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very strong, hard environment of survival. The club life was a brotherhood that attracted me from many, many years ago, you know, since I was like 17, 18 year old. You know, I'm 47 now, so I'm, you know, I'm a much older man. But going back then, it was comfort within brotherhood. And that was pretty much it. You know, it was a family that you never had. So what made you leave club life? I take your point about it being a brotherhood and a family and certainly for young men who hadn't experienced that in their in their childhoods and in their adolescence. So what makes you choose to leave that? Look, I, I to be honest with you, I had a young female. I had my oldest son's 25, so he was nine turning 10 pretty well. And I hadn't seen him in years. My wife was... We'd had our daughter who was three. She was born vision impaired, so I had a disabled child. And then, you know, here I'm looking at six years for importation. For drug importation? Correct. And then my wife was um, four months pregnant. And for me, I just went, what the fuck am I doing? What is my life worth? And what is, and I was sentenced to six years, you know, like and seeing her in the courtroom just, it just, it absolutely just shatters me now thinking about it, even all them years ago. You know, that the facial expressions, you know, just her no, you know, like it just, and I can never out of my four children go back and, you know, say that I've seen my son born and it was his birthday only just recently. And I was, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot involved. So for me personally, I got to a point after many, many, many years, my own family become everything that I ever wanted and needed outside of the room. And, the, and things were changing. There was a few things there that just for me, didn't sit well, which that's that's just how it was. Um, and, I, you know, look, to this day, I still respect those that were there. I don't have any beef. I'm not, you know, I walk my way and I don't, it's just, it's just, it's just not a part of my life, you know. I, I, I Yes, it's a part of my journey to where I am today, definitely. But, um, you know, the, the politics and all the bits and pieces around it, it's not something I even delve into. Do you think it was easier to leave for you given your status in the club or harder? I don't know. You know, it's sort of one of them things I think harder in a lot of respects because it was very tough at the time and it's not an easy decision that's taken. And plus, how did you tell the the other guys? I can't imagine that moment of telling your brothers that you wanted to leave would have been easy. No, it wasn't. And and you got brothers that sort of say, yeah, don't. We, you know, you're loved. We love you and, you know, your family. And, yeah, I, I, at the time it wasn't an easy, easy choice. And look, for some people, the way that they leave isn't a good thing in their choices. Um, I never had done anything bad. To this day, it's not for me to go out and personally do something wrong to someone to deserve, you know, reprimand or retribution. I should say. That's what I mean. What I get from you is still a lot of affection and a lot of respect for those people for the brotherhood that was there then look it just it goes across across the board i mean it doesn't matter it's not just the banditos i mean there's you got to remember back then there was a lot of communication between different clubs and at that level you know you would go to meetings and, and have those certain meetings for whatever reason you know with others and so therefore 
there's a respect level across the board. It's not just that one brotherhood or crew, you know. So there's no animosity from my point of view. If I seen them in the street, I'd be, g'day, how are you? How's the family? Simple as that. Small talk and just on, on my way. I don't have an interest in what is or was. It's not a point of conversation, but I don't have an issue with um, if I was to bump in and then I would show respect purely because, you know, I've never been shown anything else in return. Do you miss it? I miss, I miss the riding. I miss the camaraderie. I don't miss the politics and I don't miss well, – I, I can't speak less as yet for now. So I would hate to be a part of that lifestyle today because it is changed and has changed. And, you know, like um, across the board, I suppose, the way things are done. and Like we used to have fun. Like we did. We had fun. You would go on a run from one state to another and, you know, like, you know, you're sitting at the front – with your brothers and, you know, you're just feeling this energy and looking behind you in vision mirror and you've got 30, 40, 50, you know, depending on how close you're getting to where the meeting will be and they're all coming together and next minute you've got, you know, 100 plus bikes behind you and it, you can't explain that emotion and that feeling and it really is. It's, it's, it's a powerful feeling of wow and it is. Your hair stands up and it does now talking about it. Like that was unreal. Moments like that. You can't buy these days, you know, and you can't, you won't even get it. They won't know because it can't be done. As we all know, laws and, and things are, um, are changed accordingly. And Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they changed the laws so that the bikies in inverted commas couldn't, you know, group together and, you know, what were those laws? As far as I know, and I'm not up to date on specifics with the law, I choose not to want to know. It's not a part of my life. But, yeah, you can't fly your club colours or have any insignias like no sort of belts, rings. You can't promote your club. So you just don't see it. You don't see the boys out riding anymore. And, you know, you you, you could be on the Gold Coast back in the day and it'd be five, six, seven clubs on a weekend. You see them fanging up the Gold Coast Highway and in and out of traffic or on the back highway riding north or south. And it was it was not uncommon. And it was just like, oh, there's that club. Oh, there's that club. And, you know, so be it. You know, today, you would if you've seen a bloke ride past on a patch, you go, fuck, what's, oh, shit. Oh god, that's 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 rare. I personally think that they shot themselves in the foot because, you know, the, the one thing that I can honestly say, and people will beg to differ here, and I, I get that. But let me say something. In a community, there was always someone to answer to. So we talk about the youth trouble and the youth problems today. They've got no one to answer to, and we're looking at what it is that they're doing. It's got nothing to do with bikies selling them drugs and all the bullshit that goes. It's it's not happening like that. That's not the truth. The way that young people are today, I'm blown away. It's, I won't say scary because it's not scary. It's dangerous to think of what could come if somebody stepped into your house and you had enough in you to protect your family. You know, that man or woman that defends themselves could either lose their life against intruders or then have to be in jail away from their families and suffering from someone else's um, actions. And, you know, it was very, very rare to see the crime that we're seeing today back when clubs were predominantly visible within communities and, and areas. You know, there was, like I say, there was always, and there'd be mums and dads that had come to the clubhouse, believe it or not, knock on the door. Oh, could we just have a chat? You know, our son's running around knocking off bloody push bikes or jumping into a stolen car or stealing. You know, he's out of control. If you could see him and have a word with him, we, we, we'd appreciate 100%. You know, because that, that young person would then know, oh, shit, if I'm going to make mistakes, then these blokes are not to be mucked with and they're going to come at me. So then mums sort of... And it was, it's, I describe it as a bit like an ecosystem. You know, if you look at the jungles and the ocean, there's always an A predator. 
And if you want to put it in that perspective, then I don't want to have to answer to a group of blokes that aren't going to take shit because I'm stirring up the neighbourhood and bringing, you know, unwanted attention to the community and all the rest of it. So there were good things. The government, as far as I'm concerned, yes, okay, they thought they were doing this wonderful clean-up. You've done yourself no favours. I know that on the few occasions that I've been on a highway, on a freeway, and there's suddenly there's bikers, you can hear them coming. It's a roar you won't forget. Right, and (laughs) and it's exciting. Definitely it's exhilarating, but it's also a bit scary. Everyone's a bit scared. And, you know, people are scared of bikies. If you, I don't know, you know, you go into a pub and there's bikies playing pool or whatever, it's a it's a cliche, but it's it's scary. Bikies are scary, you know that. It's an image thing, I think. Look, don't get me wrong. There's, mate, there's scary people walking the street without a set of colours. You know, you'd be surprised yeah. how many people you walk past in the street that are, you know, a predators, let's just call it, you know, could chop I you up. I wouldn't be because I do a true crime podcast, <laughs> so I get it. <laughs> but, but bikies, it's a scary image, it's right? Image. It's, it's an image. But I wonder how many bikies do you reckon come from a similar background to yours? Many, many. Look, I, I, and I'm proud to say, you know, like I, I'm now definitely uh, a lot more into my life as in how deep I've gone into a broken young boy to then becoming a man with a purpose today. So I'm okay to talk about my traumas and things like that. Um, and I refer back to it as I feel that I was just a, a scared, broken young boy that uh, evolved into this angry, aggressive man whom you know would later wear a set of colours in a club. Now, I, I truly feel that, that that was who was within that person. You know, and break that down, and that's the truth. You know that that's the truth, and I feel that there's many, and I think that's why people, you know, do come together and flock together in that respect. Is we may not have spoken about it back then because it was something. Look, it took me, you know, thirty something years to actually voice that I was sexually abused, I was raped as a child. Who wants to say that? You know, that's the average, by the way. You know, the average time it takes people is 33 years. Really? I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. That's a statistic that came out of the Royal Commission. There you go. So I just learned something then and that makes, you know, sense. And it took me to hit rock bottom before I was comfortable to just say, you know what, fuck it. I'm not here for people to have opinions. I am who I am and I need to be a better human and I need to dig deep into who I am. And it's not your shame to carry. No, it's not. And I carried so much pain and anger and, you know, that that reflected in times over the years, you know, in my actions, um, you know, like when I was younger, I was, you know, always getting into fights, causing problems, aggressive. I could never think before I acted. So therefore, you know, I'd retaliate. That was my issue. It was just an instant bang. Consequences were what, you know? Today, obviously, it's definitely not a way that I look at life or two. I mean, I'm, if I need to defend myself, I could quite comfortably be that person, but I, I would rather walk away and just... <laughs> Mate, just have a good day. You know, I'm, I'm happy just, just being. But also we've learned already that you can defend yourself intellectually quite handily. I think the most dangerous person is that person. You know, we can all cop a smack in the mouth and a punch in the head and sometimes, you know, unlucky and, you know, someone may pull a blade and or a gun and you may get shot or stabbed and that's a worst-case scenario. But I definitely agree. I think, you know, a smart man with a wise words is, is a very powerful person and can defuse a situation and, you know, a sergeant arms was always somebody who had to think before actions because there's consequences and you couldn't be that person that was erratic. You you needed to be able to be somebody who at least had half an ounce about them to be able to think and speak. You know, speech is very important because words can be taken completely in so many ways and contexts. 
I can't stand someone that yells at me or raises their voice. I take that instantly. And if that were years ago, I would just, I would instantly react and smack down the mouth. You know, these days I sort of take a breath and I'll either choose to just turn my back and walk away if that, you know, if that occurs or try to find the right way of connecting with that person and, and minimising the outcome for both of us. Yeah. So how did you cope in jail in that environment? It is hard. Yeah. It is hard because, you know, your politics are everybody's politics and nobody cares. And Lots of shouting. Yeah. Well, funny enough, there is and there isn't. You know, there's a bit of a code and, you know, come certain locking time, the place sort of goes dead quiet and it's an eerie quiet because, you know, everybody's just doing their time. No one wants to hear yelling and screaming and complaining, you know, this misconception that there's yelling. Yeah, okay, when you get into remand, there's a bit because there's obviously – there could be conflict between inmates. It could be – it's a very heated sort of situation to be in when everyone's just coming off the street. Once you get your class on, you head off to your jails and, you know, things tend to – they're definitely calmer in respect to way of life. I mean, if you've got dramas, then obviously you've got dramas and what have you, things will be dealt with as it gets dealt with. But in general, it's actually people just try to do their own time. I mean, I know I've just spoken to someone recently who's not long come out and he said it's – it's an ugly – it was always an ugly place, but it's it's really ugly these days. And I really do feel for, for many uh, people that are going through it because there is a lot of people who get caught up in situations and circumstances that then end up, you know, being a crime and end up having to do a time. Not everybody's bad in jail. It's like not everybody's bad in a bike club. Not everybody's bad in religion. Not everybody's bad. And, you know, there, there is so many good and so much good around so much sort of negativity. Brent Simpson is a fascinating man and we definitely couldn't fit all of his story into just one episode of Australian True Crime. So tune in on Thursday to hear a special episode about Brent's childhood. It's not an easy listen, but it's part of our commitment to highlighting the victim-offender overlap. I believe that the key to reducing violent crime is better care for young victims of violence. And the first step is listening to people like Brent so please join us on Thursday. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How do you, I, I, there must be so, so many people thinking, okay, I know I don't want this. This is horrible. How on earth though do I change things? How do I get out of this? I'm so deep in this now. So if we look at your situation, it really is a pretty natural progression from your childhood through your adolescence into the club and into jail. That's pretty easy to see that progression. So how do you then go from the moment where you're sentenced and you look up and you see the look on your pregnant wife's face and you think this sucks? What do you do though? It sucks, but how do you change anything? How do you get out of that situation? Yeah. I mean, firstly, you've got to accept, and it's never easy to accept what the magistrates just or the judges have just handed down. I mean, I was looking at 10 years. Six years was a win. You know, my wife at the back of the court, and he, the judge sort of starts, you know, you're sentencing starts at I pled guilty straight away I was only me there was no co-offenders so basically there was no statements there was nothing it was just all right you got me I'm done end of story I've got nothing to say so that being said didn't waste the court's time so you're entitled to a reduction um, because of the early guilty plea so they started at 10 years you know and my wife was at the back and her scream was just like no you know like a full frightened woman you know she's four months pregnant I'm sitting there and I'm in the, the glass box in the district court and I'm looking across and I'm just like, I knew that it was coming down, but I didn't know to what level. I just knew that there was still reductions. I was accepting the fact there and then that it wasn't 10 years, so I'm winning. You know, it wasn't eight. That's even better, but it was six. <laughs> so, you know, in my head, I'm thinking I can do this, but no. It wasn't something that was easy to take on and, and, and it took a long time of me just going, how the fuck am I going to get through this? You can't control anything outside of those four walls and until you understand that and realise that, you find it very hard. And You can sit there and tell yourself it, but to functionally do it, some people just switch off and some people don't really mind doing the time and that's just their life. But if you genuinely have had enough, I mean, I've been in and out since I was 13. I've done this was now with six years, it added up to 14 years in custody since I was a kid. It's a massive chunk. And you know, this is why I'm I'm a big advocate for making my life sort of, I guess, be public in that respect. And many others like me now, we've been able to join forces in a positive manner, you know, and and really come together and try and deter our, our next generation and young people. We can never get back those years. Like I've got an older son that I missed out on the first four years of his life. I didn't see my second son born. I can never, ever go back and, and replace that moment. You know, out of four children, how do you sit there and say, oh, well, look, I'm sorry, you know. 
I, I chose to be in jail. It doesn't sit well. And he's 13 just recently, you know, and I'm still looking him in the eyes with tears in my eyes on his birthday going, I, I, I stutter like this. Going, I can't. It's hard, you know, like how do you, you – I, I can't connect in that manner. And we have we talk about it because it, it's it's something that has to be – it's a positive about having that conversation. And, you know, he's amazing and I'm, I'm – thank God for that. I really do, you know, because it isn't easy. But they're ongoing traumas that you live with from those choices. So, you know, you're always reminded of your past, you know, and for me – I don't want to be back there. I don't. I don't want. That's not a life that is good for anybody, let alone my children having a role model to look up to. You know, like they've suffered enough when I'd made those choices, and for me, that was the final straw. I just went, "This is this is not my life anymore. It's their life, and I'm just there to guide and assist and protect and give them the best opportunity." From a jail cell, thousands of kilometres away. In the end, I ended up because they were up in the Gold Coast. I was down at sort of um, Bathurst and. You know, I end up saying, no visits, don't worry about it. You know, you're not coming with two children, two young children. Like I just said, no. And I, my last 12 months, I pretty well did with no visits. But that was something I had to choose, you know. Uh, was it good? I missed them, missed them dearly. I, everyone's going out on the weekend to have their visits with their family and I had, you know, next, no one. No one really coming to visit at all. I might be lucky if I had a, a so-called buddy that might just pop in, you know, for, for an hour and, and it might have been three, four months in between. But no, I didn't have that in the end, and that was my choice because I felt that the family deserved more respect. So people forget that they do the time, you know, and they're out here trying to keep things going, trying to pay the bills, trying to – yeah, you're in there and sometimes doing it hard in there, but – Yeah, absolutely, especially if you have a wife. Your wife is doing it real hard. What about your family, your parents? My father and I, um, we today have a great relationship. We've resolved a lot of, um, I guess, traumas and things over the years. You know, my dad's an amazing man. He's not the healthiest today, but he's a, a big-hearted, great man. And, you know, he's changed his ways massively. But, look, it wasn't until I was a grown man that we actually could have it out. And he had a lot of traumas. And without sort of exposing or getting into too much detail, it's not my story to tell. But let's just say that my story and what traumas I went through and things I endured wasn't just me. It was something that had also taken place in his generation and he had never, you know, that's an older generation. You know, he was born in 1950. So you would just, no one cared. No one would speak about it. And I never understood why he drank so much, why he carried so much aggression, why he was the way he was. I almost basically was the same person as what my father was without even knowing that I was being that way for the basically the same reason. So Today, I'm blessed, you know, and, and I love him dearly. I'm very grateful. He's a, he's a great grandfather and a great. We don't see each other. We haven't seen each other because he lives south of Sydney uh, over a year and a half, and I can't leave the state. Uh, he's not in the best health. So it upsets me a little bit because if anything was to happen, I can't just go be by his side. Yeah. Look, it's all upsetting. It's, it's upsetting that, you know, we hear you breaking the cycle of so many cycles in your family genuinely changing your life. I mean, obviously without mentioning the matter, police have come to you two years ago and wanting to talk about a matter from however many years ago. It's been a long, long road and obviously I'm taking it to trial. It's 13 years ago there was an incident that occurred and not that I am alleged to have been a part of it but alleged that I was in the company of those later in the evening that had a conversation about it so they're charging me with an accessory after the fact. So I had a work injury five years ago that almost killed me. Um, I was lucky to survive. Permanent damage was done in my L5 thoracic lumbar area. 
And um, we have submitted four times in that time. The Crown and the DPP are like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you permission, but we need something in writing from a specialist, not a GP. Well, to get that, you've got to fucking have an MRI. How am I going to get an MRI without you taking the ankle bracelet off? It just kept milking me money and money. It cost me over four grand every time I submit. You know, like it's, it's been crazy. So that being said, it was um, – it got to the point where the disc was bone on bone. I was getting facet injections every six months to be able to function, go to work and live somewhat of a normal life. And then I had uh, three days of really, really bad nerve pain to the point where I lost my legs, controlled them, pissed myself the whole lot, fell flat on my face in front of my kids and it was like, this is not good. And, and yeah, five weeks in the hospital and – double spinal fusion. and So since then you've been wearing the ankle bracelet, which prevents you from having medical treatment that you need, prevents you from seeing your father. Yes. Prevents you from working. At my full potential definitely stops me because I'm a long-haul truck driver as well and that's, that's my trade and I can't earn the money that I could earn, uh, which has made it very difficult, obviously providing for a family and also to being able to fight these battles, you know, like actually having the funds I can't get your legal aid and all that sort of thing. You know, I'm, there's no options. It's just that's the way it is and you have to adapt and they make it as difficult as possible to be able to, you know, genuinely have a chance at defending yourself. Yeah, and to change things. Oh, absolutely. To put it very simply and put it, it's going to sound very cheesy, but it's like how do you go straight? Like, you, you know, here you are a, a guy who's trying – to go straight. You're trying to work. You're trying to have a family. You're trying to not be involved in crime. And, you know, look, I'm, people are going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're, you're guilty or whatever, judge. You know, judge away. I'm okay with it. I've got big shoulders. You know, look, I, I I personally wouldn't sacrifice everything I've, I did own or anything that I had in my family's time if I felt that two and a half years later that I, I, I was guilty of anything alleged. Simple as that. Well, I think you've proven that. You, you pled guilty to your last... Well, that's what I mean. I've never yeah. not... You look in my criminal history even, you know, as a young person, I've never mucked the court's time around. I don't. And it's not... You know, I'm not a re-offender. I don't go out and commit crime. It's just not my life. So why would I take all this time and go through this trouble and trauma and put my family through this if I didn't believe in my heart that I, you know, I, I have nothing that I can offer. So therefore, that's, you know, that's it in a nutshell there. But um, it, it's, it's a tough road because... There's constant roadblocks that you just they're purposely put there to test and obviously prevent you from achieving an end result. At the same time, though, you you do a lot of um, outreach work. Do you work with youth offenders or like what's that work entail? Yeah, so I, I and I say it with great honour. I did have um, a lot of honour to work with young people, young offenders in twelve week, ten and twelve week programs. So they were. You know, troublesome youth coming from hardened backgrounds. I mean, some terrific stories of young persons, you know, 12, 13, raising their juniors again, mums on the pipe all night, you know, on the ice. The next minute there's, you know, 10 different blokes coming through the house and they're not, they're not sleeping, they're getting up, they're dressing these younger siblings. It, it actually really hits me hard emotionally. I get really it triggering just purely for the fact that, you know, I've worked with these young people and I've seen the brokenness in them and I was one of those broken young persons. Did you use drugs, by the way? When I was younger, I did amphetamines uh, when I was very young, purely for the fact of just being able to stay awake because I was too scared to go to sleep. I was homeless. I was a street kid, drinking massively, never really smoked. Because that's another part that's that's interesting about you is that, as you said, you know, you're, you realise that you had sort of grown up to be your dad in some ways and 
and these kids that you're talking about, I would guess, I would wager that a lot of these stories are generational, that their parents grew up in similar households and their parents grew up in similar households. How is it, do you think, that your marriage isn't following the same path that your parents did, that that you're not raising your children in the same environment that you grew up in? How have you not done that? I, look, I, I made a, a choice to never, ever have to go through that personally once I had children. So the moment I had the opportunity to escape the, the housing commission, you know, the upbringing of Western suburbs of Sydney, I was gone. I, if, if anything, growing up on the streets gave me that opportunity. If I can put it in perspective, because if I had to have that whole family environment, I would always had to have waited for mum and dad to say, okay, let's move or we can't move or whatever it may be. Uh, for me, not having parents from the age of, you know, 10 years of age, I was in foster care by the time I was 10. So I was running around the streets. So I had no one to answer to. So by the time, you know, I got into a point where I sort of thought, fuck, I'm out. I'm here. Like I, I was involved in something when I was I know, 18, 19 or something. No, it was maybe yeah, 19, 20 because I'd just come out of Long Bay. So, And it just happened to be an off-duty copper and he'd had a go at me in, in a venue and, you know, just basically told me I was a piece of shit, this and that. He'd been, he was drinking and carrying on at the poker machines. And I, I had done nothing. Next minute, we are in a full fight. So and then I picked the bar stool up and attacked him with it. In self-defense, and I still say it today. But anyway, didn't go down well with the police at that stage <laughs> that one of theirs had copped it. So I took off from the venue and was on the run. And next thing I'm all over the place wanted and what have you. And it was obviously, you know, if you seem to be assaulting a police officer in any way, shape, or form, man, that's not good. <laughs> You're going to get when you get caught. So I was technically on the run. And back then you could alter, you know, your birth certificate names, what have you, and the states didn't link up. And we're talking God, 30 years ago. Yeah, you could go on the run to Perth and no one would yeah, find absolutely. you. Absolutely. And this is what I did. So I took that as an opportunity to get out, you know, and start my life. And so I headed to the sunny Gold Coast in Queensland and uh, been there ever since. And, you know, like obviously all that catches up with you. Caught up about seven years later and I could prove that I'd got up here and sorted my life. It was working and credit to the magistrate at that time because the, the warrants of fingerprints had linked up over something and bit me in the ass. But I had enough time and enough water under the bridge, which were the words of the magistrate, to be able to show that I could, from where I was, make a change and a difference. And I mean, look, I slipped up after that and, you know, in between that. But at that time, I, I did do things that I thought was making somewhat of a normality in life, you know, and I wanted to, do, I truly wanted to do that. Um, how to break that cycle back then, I had no idea, had no support, I had nothing. And I sort of started venturing back into that lifestyle of the brotherhood and around it and, you know, the rest is history around that. But here we are today. And and you and your wife are still together. That's not a bad job. Yeah, 20 years, actually. I'm blessed. She taught me to love. She taught me to accept love. She's been amazing, you know, Um. I was a broken soul when she took me on and I had, you know, a, a young son. I'd been in a 10-year relationship and here's this gorgeous, you know, young woman. She's a few years younger than me. You know, she didn't have to take on that role. She had the world at her feet and could have quite easily gone and started her own journey with, um, you know, from scratch. But she chose me and she chose to take on me and what came with me. Um, I honourably can honestly say that life was never brought into my home. I'm, I'm very old school like that. Home life was home life. Like even at the point with only certain brothers I would have at home. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but it's, it's true. I, it's just I'm old school and it was always, you know, your home life's your home. You don't bring your club and your home life into. Yeah, right. You know, like my wife would never never once been in a clubhouse, just ever. Yeah, okay. Never. It's just 
It's not what it is. We never spoke about it in the home. It was just that's how it was. I got to a point where I felt I'd had enough and I needed to find purpose again. You know, I live with type 2 bipolar and PTSD. So for me, you know, it, it, it's a tough road at times, but I, I've managed to utilise that in a positive way these days, which has been fantastic. How does your bipolar manifest? Well, I live with type 2 bipolar so and, and, and traumatised, obviously, from the sexual abuse I endured, the physical abuse, the upbringing, and then obviously, you know, a lot of alcohol and drugs over the years of self-abuse and self-medicating. It all took its toll. I, you know, was medicated for many, many years. And then coming out of jail after a lengthy sentence, you know, they, they fed you a lot of shit in there to just sort of sedate you, I guess. And I got to the point where I used that to say, fuck this, I'm walking out of this place a clean-headed man. And that's what I did. When I come home, I had three years parole because I was a federal offender and I needed a purpose. So I had rung a mate in Perth. He said, oh, when will you come over and visit this and that? And I said, well, one day he said, oh, yeah, he's on your bike, you know, like joking, on your bike, mate. And I said, on me, I said, I said, I'll ride over there one day. He goes, you ain't ride. I said, in fact, you know what? Bang, that was it at that moment. I said, as soon as my parole's finished, I'm going to be the first in the world to cycle across Australia from east to west in under 50 days to raise awareness for mental health and suicidality. And that's exactly what I did. Exactly. 4,564 kilometres in 45 days. I, I had a 10-day hospital stay because I fractured my elbow. Wow. Yeah, I did. Second day into it. And um, I rode 2,000 kilometres with a fractured elbow and ended up at Sejuna oh. with septicemia. And I didn't know what it was. Had no idea. All I know is I wasn't, wasn't good and got airlifted to Royal Adelaide and um, operated on and what have you and was told, look, mate, you have to knock it on the head. And I went, I can't. This is bigger than me. I said, when you take me off the intravenous uh, antibiotics, what will happen? He said, well, we give you tablets and you go on your way. I said, well, as soon as you can do that, I'm signing out, flying back to Sejuna from Adelaide where I got off the bike and I'm going to continue the other two and a half thousand kilometres. So I did that and did that in um, just over 10 days. So phenomenal for me personally to achieve that phenomenal for my children to always know that. And, and the thing was not only just to raise awareness, but self-healing to be able to give something worthy for my children to know about their dad, that he wasn't just this bloke that had been to jail and, you know, had been in the clubs and all this sort of, I don't rate that. Like that's not who I want my children to look at as a role model. That's who I was, but that's who I am today is this dad that they can look up to and be proud of. Also, do you find that intense exercise really helpful? 100%. Yeah, for PTSD and... Yeah, one hour of intense uh, exercise gives you 12 hours of positive chemical release within the brain. Something that I've been massive around is the mental health space. You know, I uh, was lucky enough to stand up in front of sort of 300 clinicians as a non-clinician at the National Suicide Prevention Conference and uh, deliver a speech on lived experience. Do you talk much about your own suicidal ideation, your own patches of... Yeah, suicidality I live with every day. Yeah. I mean, I've just spent, you know, nine weeks basically incapacitated, uh, a double spinal fusion. You know, like I can tell you now, every three hours getting injections of morphine for five weeks straight. I was in some dark days. And not being able to exercise properly. No, nothing. And I, my mental health went to shit to the point where those demons started knocking on my door. But I reached out. I had people that I knew I could trust that I could just say, I'm struggling, whether it be, you know, people that were Christians or people that were just breath work, people that I knew. I had options. But I had to learn to understand that it's okay to use those options, you know, and that took a lot of years because there's a lot of pride and a lot of sort of you just got to realise that, it's okay to not be okay and you're not alone. And that there are things that can help. I think sometimes 
with mental health, people don't realise you can feel better. I haven't been medicated for, God, 14 years, 13 years. And I'm not saying, please, guys, if you need to take medication, do it. I did it and was able to wean away from it with a positive mindset and structured future of how I would live with type 2 bipolar and PTSD. So is it a perfect solution? No, but I'm strong enough minded now to to reach out or put my hand up and say, I'm fucking stuck. I'm going down real quick. Like my wife will look at me and she'll know just the way I'm. my expressions are on my manic. I do get manic, you know, or she'll see my eyes and she'll just look and she'll say, go, just go, get out that fucking door and go, go run, <laughs> swim, cycle, surf, whatever you got to do, get out of the house and go. So when you've got that sort of around you to give you that kick up the ass, it helps because then you go, okay, yeah, I'm obviously starting to spin and spiral down. That was huge. And then I did Tasmania and went down there. They had the biggest um, youth suicide rate per capita at that stage, two years in a row. Yeah, and it was horrific. You know, So I wanted to bring attention to that. So therefore, I went down there and continued to cycle around. Tassie and did that in eight days and got some really good sort of uh, connection and media with the people down there. And you know, just starting the conversations and letting people know that, like I said, you're not alone and it's okay to reach out. I then started a national charity called the Heavy Hitters Foundation. We basically started a, an organisation that was become a registered business and then you know, an organisation to later becoming a, a national recognised charity that was phenomenal in our groundwork and hands-on you know, dealing with people all walks of life. You know, and we saved lives. You know, we connected with so many people. I was very proud of that. But due to funding, you know, we ended up self-funding it and it really took us way down, you know, like it really did. It's a tough gig, you know, when you're passionate about something and that impact was really, really good. And, you know, then obviously looking at that and thinking always a couple of years on, how can I still be involved? How can I help people? How can I continue to bring positivity and not see people go down the paths I went down or, you know, to continue to feel that there's no hope? Well, you're doing it, you know, you are doing it. Doing it. And continue to do it. You know, I refuse to lose. Um, you know, I tell my children every day, you wake up. Just today, all I ask of you is just be the best you can be. I don't want you to go out there and win. I don't want you to come home and tell me I'm the best, I'm the greatest, you know. I want you to look in the mirror each day and say, I did my best. And if you can say that honestly, that's all I can ask for as a father. And I'm very blessed that um, my oldest son's a sound engineer. He'd finished university by the time he was 20, 23, 22, actually. He's a self-confessed nerd, but I'm happy with that. I've never had that call saying your son's in a gutter off chops. You need to come and get him or at the local police station. So that's been, that's been a really cool thing. And, you know, my daughter, whom's 16 on her way to 17, she, she's an amazing young woman. She's born with congenital motor nystagmus, which is, um, well, she's classed as legally blind. Uh, she's been with Vision Australia and under their help and guidance since she was five. So that puts it in perspective. It's a very serious thing, you know, but inspired inspired by this beautiful young lady who's doing amazing things, you know, she's just absolutely out there taking on the world, never complains, you know, who the fuck am I to? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
means? What, what's my problem? And then I've got, you know, my, my middle son who's an academic uh, and a very, very strong athlete who's doing successfully well. My worry is my nine-year-old. <laughs> he's a <amazing laughs> But he's just one of them kids that's just so independent. You know, walks around with his footy all day long every day. He just loves his footy. He loves playing with the older kids. You know, he's on his dirt bike. He just ventures off. And it's sort of like we, we tend to think these days that you do need to be very conscious and careful as a parent of what the world is. And it's not as pretty as it once was. And, and we sort of need to be a little bit more hands-on, I think, in respect to knowing. Well, we put little tracker things on their phones and what have you. So... <laughs> It's just, it's just a parent. Don't thing. tell me, don't tell me the ex bandito is a helicopter parent. Oh, look, I don't know about the hell. I just, I'm a cautious <laughs> parent because I just know that people, like I always say to my kids, you know, my middle son, he says, Dad, look, you know, the boys, we're going to go down, say, for example, to the next town. And look, we need to get on a bus and we're going to go down to the beach. And just, cool. Now, I've always tried to make sure that my, my children, you know, not have the best. We don't have the best of anything, but we, we, I like my children to look smart. I want them to look and feel good. You know what I mean? I know what it's like to not have shoes on your feet and have to go and steal your undies and socks. That's just plain and simple. I've lived that life. I would never want to. I'll work very hard to make sure that, you know, that my children walk out the door feeling proud. And then had the best of everything, but they look smart. So then there's kids out there that are rolling people for their shoes and jumpers and T-shirts. So in the back of my mind, there's always that consciousness of what if. You know, and it happens so often at local shops. It, it, you know, it, it's just that's the reality of the youth of today. I would rather know at any moment where my children are that I can get to immediately, even if their phone goes down and they get that moment or say, I'm help that or whatever, you know, like I can get to them. It's, it's just a <laughs> – it might be that Sergeant at Arms <laughs> protective. <laughs> yes, yeah, Sergeant at Arms to the family at least. I just – look, I just want the best for them. And, uh, look, you know, I, I've – got to be really honest and very proud my wrongs have been my children's rights i've never held back from who their dad is right or wrong because i felt it's it's something that i've needed to be shared with them in hope that they don't make those choices if i'm out here supporting others then how can i not be honest with my own children thank you to our guest brent simpson and don't forget to tune in on thursday for another special episode with him on australian true crime if you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.